Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 393rd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this ninth year. Ah, after a highly successful but whirlwind trip to Australia, we're back in the magical city of Los Angeles in our studio on Hollywood Boulevard. And this is the place where technology meets entertainment. Last month, 19-year-old San Diego Lopez became the first person to earn $1 million US as an ethical hacker. San Diego is the most successful professional hacker in the world. In his four-year-long career, he's found 1,748 vulnerabilities in corporations' websites. And last year, his skills earned him more than 40 times his home country of Argentina's annual median salary, 19 million bucks, hacking. The world's changed. Now, hackers used to live in the shadows and keep their digital exploits to themselves, but today's young elite hackers, they're high-profile public figures. Everybody wants to know them. They travel internationally to participate in hackathons, They give keynote speeches at cybersecurity conferences and universities and uh, where hackers were once pursued by authorities like the FBI. These kids are now pursued by elite universities, big corporations, and they get very lucrative job offers. Hackers exist on a spectrum. On one end, black hat hackers find vulnerabilities to rob unsuspecting victims, like the ransom hackers, for example. And on the other hand, white hat hackers find vulnerabilities to keep clients secure. Grey hat hackers do a little bit of both, finding vulnerabilities without being asked and then seeking payment. So the ethical hackers get employed by the corporations And uh, they hack and find vulnerabilities. For most of hacking's history, white hat hacking opportunities were few and hard to find. But in 2010, Google launched a public bug bounty program, i.e. get into these internet websites, etc., and find bugs. Same with apps. The next year, Facebook rolled out a similar program, offering white hat hackers a minimum of 500 bucks and eliminating the limit on the amount they could earn. So essentially, the bigger the vulnerability you find, the more money you can make. And the world's biggest companies started offering hackers a legal way to make really big money. Opportunity took off when third-party companies started launching bug bounty platforms which catalogued all of the world's high-flying and high-paying hacks, and they put them in organized directories. 
So all of a sudden, Fortune 500 CEOs and national defence officials all wanted kids to start white hat hacking. And all you had to do is go to a directory and pick one. Now, the world's most valuable digital directory for white hat hackers is held by a company called HackerOne. Their bug bounty program is the largest hacker brokerage on the internet. It gives hackers a directory of companies they're allowed to exploit, and it gives companies access to ethical hackers who will continuously secure their businesses. Today, there's 300,000 hackers, 300,000, from 150 countries on HackerOne's platform, earning money as white hat hackers. Last year, hackers earned 19 million on HackerOne, and San Diego is just one member of a new generation of young professional hackers. Jack Cable, who's 18, hacked into and subsequently interned at the Pentagon. <laughs> he then started two companies and earned enough hacker cash to pay his tuition at Stanford. Paul Van, who's 17, runs a cybersecurity consultancy called Van Tech and tracks down Ukrainian cyber criminals in his spare time. He attends MIT and Sci-Fi, 18, founded a non-profit called Roots, Roots Asylum actually, to educate other young hackers. She goes by a pseudonym to protect her privacy. Bug bounty platforms offer high-achieving kids the opportunity to make plenty of money, pad their resumes, and get really valuable job experience, all without getting thrown in the slammer. And hackers start young. Christopher Van Hassel is an 11-year-old. He is the youngest professional hacker in the world. At five, Von Hassel hacked into Xbox One because he was desperate to get into games he wasn't allowed to play. He told Microsoft about, Microsoft about the bug and he's done very well ever since. Now, the white hacker revolution extends far beyond bug bounty platforms. A whole secondary ed economy has emerged to cater to these budding ethical hackers across the country. New companies train, evaluate and hire talented young hackers. Hack Club offers a nationwide network of after-school programs teaching you to hack. The Department of, of Defence sponsors hacking competitions to get kids interested in national defence and, of course, hacking. A student hackathon league called Major League Hacking <laughs> helps students prepare for jobs that in involve hacking. Today, the world San Diego lives in is one where five-year-olds hack Microsoft. Hackers like sci-fi launch non-profits and white hat teens rake in very serious cash. But while the business of hacking's grown up, the hackers themselves still live and die by the hacker code. Everything is made up to be broken and rebuilt. And eventually, I guess, the hackers will become 
The Hacked. It's pretty interesting, I reckon. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletters? We have about 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read each day, sometimes a bit longer. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, um, medical stocks, etc. And today's newsletter was about Russia's parliament approving a law that may allow the country to cordon off its internet from the rest of the world, creating an unprecedented sovereign internet. If Russia is able to pull this off, it will be the most tangible step yet towards fracturing the web. And it can also be the start of things to come in other countries. So the web would no longer be open to everybody in the world. Countries that have their own little web and the Russians, of course, can stop anything on it that they don't want on it, which is absolute, total censorship. Now, the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is my newsletter. To receive it, simply go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D, and subscribe. And if you don't want to get it anymore, just tick unsubscribe and it's gone instantly. You don't have to fuck around for months trying to get rid of the thing. It just instantly disappears. Now, people love burgers. Even vegetarians and vegans want burgers. And veggie burgers, I don't know about you, but until now, they all taste like over-seasoned, under-hydrated, corrugated cardboard. Gruesome. Then came... Ethan Brown, a six-foot-five vegan who sold his house, raided his family's savings to fund a startup called Beyond Meat. And along the way, he signed up Bill Gates and Twitter founder and Twitter founders Biz Stone and Evan Williams, as well as Leonardo DiCaprio as investors. They all did very well this week. And uh, here in Los Angeles, particularly in Hollywood. Vegans are growing like weeds. They're bloody everywhere. It's not unusual for us to have a group at the house and 50% or more are vegans. And how do you tell if somebody's vegan? It's really easy because they'll tell you within 30 seconds of meeting you. I can't wait to tell you that they're vegan. I don't know why. Now, Beyond Meat is creating quite a stir. It's sold nationally in supermarkets with an accelerating sales trajectory. It's selling like crazy. The company also went public last week in an explosive IPO with its stock soaring by 163%. Beyond Beyond Meat raised nearly $241 million and reached its $1 billion-plus unicorn valuation, in large part because of the success of its Beyond Burger which replicates the taste and feel of a hamburger. However, the plant-based burger uses more than vegetables to recreate the taste of a classic bleeding burger. Beyond Meat's Beyond Burger uses 22 ingredients in its attempt to recreate the taste and texture of a beef burger. Here's some of what's in them. Salt, sunflower oil, vegetable glycerin, dried yeast, gum arabic, citrus extract, ascorbic acid, beet juice extract, acetic acid, 
succinic acid, pea protein isolate, expel a pressed canola oil, refined coconut oil, cellulose from bamboo, methyl cellulose, potato starch, natural flavour, maltodextrin and yeast extract. Does any of that sound appealing to you? With all this stuff in it, is it healthy? Just saying a food's plant-based doesn't mean it's made with vegetables and therefore healthy. These meat-free burgers, like many vegan food products, are full of derivative ingredients such as protein isolated from plants. These non-meat burgers lose nutrients and pro- with processing. This is according to dietitians. The issue is that highly processed foods are left with highly absorbable carbohydrates and little of the important nutrients like fibre, vitamins, minerals and phytochemicals remaining. Now, the Beyond Burger has more than five times as much sodium as a regular burger. And too much sodium can lead to high blood pressure, which increases the risks of heart, heart disease and stroke. Of course, one good thing is that Beyond Burger has zero cholesterol, as opposed to the 100 milligrams of cholesterol in an 85% lean beef hamburger. So that's good. But is Beyond Meat healthy and sustainable? Nutritionists say absolutely not. Many of the actual ingredients are masked by their name, to name but a few. Canola oil. One tablespoon of canola oil contains 2,610 milligrams of omega-6 fatty acid and 1,279 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids. So you say, wow, that's great. We need omega-3. However, the omega-3 found in canola oil isn't beneficial at all. It doesn't convert to EPA or DHA, which is the beneficial part of omega-3. Another ingredient, caramel colour. This contains ammonia and sulphites, and it's a carcinogen. Carcinogen, I guess the word is. It's got yeast extract, which is just MSG under another name. It overstimulates the nervous system, leads to the development of significant inflammation, increases blood pressure, central obesity, and type 2 diabetes. It's also got carrageenan, which is yet another carcinogenic risk to humans' intestinal ulcerations and neoplasms. It also has titanium dioxide, yet another carcinogen. Now, why would someone digest an ingredient in these plant-based burgers that's also contained in paint? So how did we get to the point where we think that eating a Beyond Meat burger created in a lab with toxic ingredients is sustainable? Apart from all the energy and emissions in the manufacturing process, consider the gas, the emissions, the resources used to take this Los Angeles-based fake meat product to, say, Michigan or Louisiana or Miami or New York. So one... It's not healthy. Two, it's not sustainable, but vegans are flocking to it. Don't ask me. My interview guest today is Sue Jauncey.
and she creates programs around the world to influence performance improvements through behavioural strategies. Very interesting interview. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Sue in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last six years, seven years really now, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We've spoken to them about what it is they do, what inspired them to do it, the challenges that they faced, and we try to work out at the end of the day what it is that makes them tick, because only about 3% of new businesses are successful. So what do those 3% of people do that the other 97% don't do? And uh, so that's why it's important that we listen to interviews like this one and any other interviews with successful people you can get a hold of, read books by successful people, just so that you have a better idea of the things that um, work and don't work. The aim of this segment is to assist you to become more successful. Now, my guest today, Sue Chauncey, is a registered psychologist who began a career working across the Australian prison system from the outside. She wasn't on the inside of the prison system. This experience, although she'd probably look good in stripes. This experience enabled her to gain a deep understanding of human behaviour and the effects of everyday decision-making processes, motivation and readiness for individuals to receive insights and desire for change. Sue was recruited by the global organisation Anderson to head their human capital division. During a time with Anderson, she travelled globally to further a training and research in board management and organisational measuring, monitoring and influencing of performance improvements through behavioural strategy. That's really important because 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 succeed necessarily because they've got a great product or service. There's a million companies that have great products and services that fail. It's the quality of the board and the management and the organisation and 
everybody being on the same page, having a great corporate culture. They're the things that are important. And they're also the things that are very difficult to do. So um, Sue's experience working with boards, executive teams and whole of organisations, both for public, both for public, private, (laughs) both for, for public, private, not-for-profit, government and cooperative organisations. She's the founder and director of Pulse Global. Now, I'll get her to explain this is about, but the company's grown from a small boutique consulting business to a global company. It's interesting because the last two weeks I've spoken to entrepreneurs in Ireland, two totally separate entrepreneurs, both in Ireland, and I'm talking to Sue today in England. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard all around the world. Thank you, Bob, and it's lovely to be talking with you again. So we talk about corporate culture and culture in general. What the hell is culture? Who defines it? Is my culture different than your culture? And what is it? What are the parameters of culture? Bob, let's keep the conversation simple. I think part of the issue is we try to overcomplicate these topics and in in the overcomplication of it, we lose sight of of what the real issues are and what we need to be addressing. So for for the benefit of this conversation... I'm going to say culture is something very simple. It's just the way we do things around here. Um, We don't need any other intellectual, academic applications to what this is because what we find is the the simplest way you can explain things or or talk to issues, the more powerful the outcomes because we can chunk this down psychologically so people can understand things and then it's easier for them to think about, reflect and, and apply. But if we, if we talk about culture, Bob, uh, I think the thing that interests me most of all is, um, is considering, if you like, people haven't looked at culture and the ramifications of the things that we have done in organisations and does it actually work to promote a happy, healthy workplace? And, and what, what does constitute a happy, healthy workplace to begin with? I don't think we have explored all the ramifications of this or really understood, you know, what it means to get people working together. So, so culture for us is, well, for one thing, it's, it's not a choice, Bob. You get two people together and you have a culture. Culture is not something you choose whether you're going to have or not. You're going to have one. The choice is, do you want a culture that just morphs by all the different conversations or bit of team building or things that we do in the organisation? Or do you want to intentionally develop a culture as a strategy for the business that helps you achieve the purpose or the outcome or the reason, you know, that you're there? And I think we need to look at this from a psychological perspective to understand what it actually takes for people to work together. Can I ask? And, and it bothers me that we. Yep. Can I ask you a question? You say culture is the way we do things around here. Is there? I guess there's yep. a. There's obviously a right way and a wrong way if you're successful or not successful. But if you take two companies like say, IBM, enormously successful over a long period of time, and mm, Tesla, enormously successful short period of time 
you could argue that no two companies could have different cultures. I mean, absolutely, totally different cultures. So is there a, a culture that works and a culture that doesn't? or a cul- How does that work? It's not so much about a culture that works or a culture that doesn't. It's about, and and yes, it's about being clear, though. So let's just step back a a moment. You know, Tesla or IBM or whatever you have, a culture has developed as an outcome of the way people have behaved inside the organisation. Yep. So you can still have success in an organisation, but are you happy uh, one with the way people have behaved. So let's, let's look at their banking organisation. They've been very successful, but have people been happy with the way people have behaved? Are people happy themselves inside the organisation? So I, I don't think the question is about, you know, you can be successful. The question is, do companies want to be successful and do they also want to be successful and be able to showcase to the world uh, the culture that they have developed that has not only provided uh, financial and commercial success, uh, but it's provided uh, success in terms of the uh, what the people inside the organisation have achieved. And, and in respect to that, Bob, no matter how successful a company is, this is what we can say, uh, no matter how successful a company is, the better the culture is. So the more your people are collectively aligned to achieve what the shared and common goals are of the organisation, you will be even more successful. So the degree to which you are aligned to achieve those collective goals is the degree to which you will be successful. Right. So it doesn't matter if... Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if you're successful now. If you had a culture that was collectively aligned together, it would be even more successful. But there's something else you need to know about this. This is what we want people to know. Depending on how you operate with inside the organisation and culturally, actually makes a difference on the opportunities that you can recognise and see. So if you've got a culture where it's all about personalisation and what's going to happen to me and the value of me and people don't treat me well and I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I'm all those things, it's a cognitive blocker from being able to see the different sorts of opportunities that are available to you. But if you're working in an organisation where you take the focus off the personal self and you work collectively together and you're heading towards a purpose, and the people get to feel a sense of achievement around what they are doing together and a sense of connection, then the opportunities you will see, so the psychology and the physiology of this is, you will see different things in the world and different opportunities of what you can do and create that without this, you would not see. You cannot cognitively recognise. There's also a big shift out there, isn't there, in the marketplace uh, where particularly with the younger generation, the um, millennials, etc., they want to do business with corporations that do have a good corporate culture that are that where people are happy and where they are um, doing good in the community. I'm thinking of people like you know the Patagonias and to a large degree the Starbucks and people like that. People um, gravitate to people to companies that do have good corporate cultures. Yes, look, and again, I would take it a, a level beyond, I guess, what, what you're presenting here. So I think the millennials 
are more about they want to feel that sense of achievement. So the children, they've been growing up in environments where parents have said to them, you can be anything you want to be. Okay, so they're they're out there in the world saying, I can do what I want and I can create what I want. So if you put them inside a a culture where it's one of learned helplessness or it's one where it has, you know, really strong restrictions around you, of course they're not going to stay. But if you put a millennial in an organisation where it's about, when I said previously about it's all about the sense of achievement that you feel. So what they're really looking for is they all have different focus in life in terms of what floats their boat, you know, so to speak. But it is the achievement that they're looking for. And now, Bob, that's a human universal. It's not just in the millennials. It's just that the millennials uh, can recognise more easily that I want to feel like I'm achieving something because that's the learned behaviour they have grown up to be told you can be anything you want to be. So they want to feel that sense of achievement around what they're doing. Whereas some cohorts before that, it was around, you know, uh, don't speak up or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it was more of a learned helplessness type cohort that we had inside the organisation, do as I tell you to do. So when we look at the millennials, what they're looking for, am I working in a workplace where I can contribute and I go home feeling like I have a sense of achievement around what I've done? That's what... That is what the basic universal human need is about that you have to have you know, in an organisation to be able to achieve those things. Now, what we need to be careful about is that we're not taking the, uh, the millennials, though, and overlaying that with a sense of personalisation in there where even the millennials or anyone for that matter then are saying it has to be done my way and, and the focus is on self that still isn't going to work for the millennials. It's got to be outside of what you think self needs and over to the collective of what can we create collectively to achieve these goals. And that's what the millennials love. They love the team. They love the connection. They love the fact that uh, just give me a space where I can be creative and we can achieve and we keep building because for them, there is no limitation. What's the, um, what's the level of realisation amongst boards and management that they really need to get everyone in the company on the same page with something that they can believe in and something that they can all strive towards? It's Or are they more concerned with my next quarter's um, numbers? It's nowhere where it needs to be yet. So there's a lot of conversation, as you well know, around culture. Yep. But they haven't they haven't really focused or asked the right questions around it yet. So yes, whilst they're first, you know, whilst they're still focused on what's my next quarter results going to be, and I don't blame them in a way, Bob. Let's look at it. You know, over the last 20, 30 years, people have come in and said, we work on your culture and we're going to do some team building and we're, we're going to, you know, do some focus groups and things like this. And, and the C-suite turn around and go, but I haven't seen any real change in behaviour and it hasn't actually changed the performance and everything is still the same. So I do not see the value in investing, you know, in this sort of... But nor were we asking the right questions and nor were we looking at what we needed to look at to get a workforce to be able to work to achieve, you know, that sense of achievement that I'm, that I'm talking to. So we've been our own worst enemy in terms of, you know, how, we've, how we have enabled the workforce or harnessed the workforce. And don't ever underestimate the power of the people and what they will do. So let me just look at something for a minute. They don't see the value in it. And one of the ways we can demonstrate this is currently you, you talk to organisations about how much they invest in their um, 
their IT, their you know technical solutions and all the, all the technology yep. solutions. And the company says it's nothing to spend twenty million dollars because they think if they put a good um, technical solution in place or a technology solution, then that the people are going to follow that and that's just going to solve all the issues around what they need to achieve. Uh, but mind you, it's the people that still have to follow or you know adhere to those processes if you like. But uh, so then when we ask, so how much did you actually invest in your people? It's normally less than 1% of that value, if at all. Sure. So why is it that we say we value our workforce, but we invest, we don't invest in them in the same way as we invest in other, you know, the technology? And that is because, Bob, we do not understand it and we do not how to harness it because if, if organisation and the leaders, if they knew and they were confident and certain of what they were going to get by harnessing the power of the workforce, they wouldn't think twice about investing in it. Okay, well, let's, let's just talk about Pulse for a moment. So, I've got a, I've got a corporation and I'm concerned that um, the corporate culture is not as good as it could be and we've got a, a reasonably high turnover of staff and, you know, we're not we're not capitalising on... on um, on our people, we call you. We call we call Pulse, and we say, "What can we do? How do you how do you go about okay. how do you go about changing our? How do you determine what the situation is now? How do you determine um, what it is that you need to change it to? And how the hell do you go about doing that?" Okay, so I guess the first thing we do, and, and given I am a psychologist, I go in and I profile the organisation as if it was a person. So what, right. what is the profile that we're dealing with anyway? So what are the issues? So, you know, we do that first, put that to one side, and then you understand the profile. But we need to understand we do not go in to try to change the people. We don't try to change their cultures. We don't try to change their belief system. We certainly don't, you know, change the diversity that you've got around there. What we do do is say, if the organisation was to achieve X, what would you need your workforce to be doing to achieve that? So in the days when I was working with offenders and we had all the different cultures in the one room that we needed to deal with, very discrete different cultures, we didn't try to change the culture or the belief. We just took a few simple key things and said, if you were all coming in and working towards this goal with the different cultures and belief systems that you have, how would you do that? How would you achieve it? And it's actually quite profound watching people, when you ask the right questions and watching what people will do to come up and, and achieve this. So at the time when I was working with the offenders, um, before working with them, they, the biggest part of their day, the excitement was how many fights they got into at the morning tea break. Versus when we started to get them to talk together about how they would achieve these goals together, it was quite phenomenal what they came up with and how these people started working together and they did not have to change their belief system or their culture. You know, the thing is, the thing is this, Bob, this is not a big complex model. The simpler it is, the better. You put in some key things, like one of the most important behaviours to have everyone working to across an organisation is just doing what you say you're going to do. Can you imagine if you worked in an organisation where everyone followed through and actually did what they said they were going to do? Do you think that would make a difference? Absolutely. So what, what, did, what did you achieve okay. inside the prison system? Uh, the, the work in the prison system was a, 
that was about renormalizing and re-socializing people back into the community. So you would actually get the feedback. Now, there was some issues, Bob, though, in terms of the system and the way it was set up because we would work with offenders inside the organization, inside the prison, I beg your pardon, and, um, but then they were released back out into the community. And once they were released back out into the community, the same stimulus was there that was always there before, which had them offending in the first place. Sure. Okay. So when you would work with offenders, we would say, the offenders would say to us, when you're here, we think that our life could be different. And then when you go away, you know, all the old stimulus comes in and we default back to the way we behave. That's what actually happens inside organisations. You keep defaulting back, you know, to what the, uh, the culture of the organisation had been. But the offenders, what we had said to the system at the time is rather than building bigger, better prisons, you actually need to tackle the stimulus that's in the community that has people offending. And everyone needs to take accountability for that you know, and what we're doing. By the way, that little word, accountability, plays a big part of what we do because when you look at the factors that make up a sense of self-worth in a person, there's, there's many different things. But two of the biggest factors are if you are going to feel a sense of achievement or connection, one of the basic foundational platforms that you need to have is people need to be held accountable. If they are held accountable for something and they know they've got clarity of purpose around what that accountability is, they perform better. They have a higher sense of self-worth. They produce more. They're more creative. They follow through. They're more responsible. Now, the accountability piece is really interesting in the way we live today because a lot of the uh, different um, systems, if you have, you know, that we have, don't hold people accountable. And if you if you don't hold people accountable when you're trying to make change, they're going to default back to their normal pattern. So imagine sure. this, Bob. You wake up and you're going to go and get yourself healthy this year, so you join a gym. Okay, this is the year you're going to get nice and healthy. You buy your gym membership. Yep. Within one month, normally, on average, that gym membership is away in the cupboard. If your intention was right. But there was nothing to hold you accountable to keep going with this so you didn't achieve the goal you had set with yourself. Sure. Okay? Sure. So any, any sort of change that you want to take on board, it's got to have that accountability woven into it to hold people while you're re-socializing or re-normalizing a way of doing things around here. The upshot of that when you do that is the level of uh, self-worth that people get to experience from what they have achieved goes from a culture of compliance or a culture of learned helplessness yep. to a culture of confidence and self-worth where the opportunities they see is different to those cultures where it's still a culture of compliance. Right. Now, you're, um, I've reached you in England at the NHS. Now, you've, you've had Great success with the NHS. Could you just give us an overview of what the NHS is, the size of it, and what you've been able to achieve in there? Well, the NHS is the national health system, you know, for England, where they have um, a number of trusts, 257 trusts throughout throughout England that cater for the different counties and, um, you know, the population within those counties. So we were a number of the trusts, and it is very, very big. You know, the organisation as a whole started off uh, from Winston Churchill after the last World War, saying that one of the rewards was giving the health system for free to 
to the English uh, people. Yep. So um, 70 years later, uh, we've gone on, and um, there's a lot of learned helplessness in the NHS by the very way the system operates, where we've got the regulatory parties that they come in and tell the trust what they're doing right or wrong, and once you go into special measures, it's all about what you're doing wrong rather than taking them out, you know, with, with the support they need about, you know, what they're doing right. So when we arrived at the, the trust, it was very much one of learned helplessness. People couldn't make decisions uh, anymore. Um, they were waiting to be told what needed to be done. Uh, they were harking back on all the things that they didn't do well. And, and it, was a, it wasn't a very happy place, if you like, at the, at the time. And you had very capable people in the trust, very capable, talented people inside the trust. So in the, the time that we were there, there's two departments, the, the radiology department that was um, in, in what you call a section 31, which is in special measures, which meant that they were um, not performing up to national standards and they needed additional help. Um, they are now, they've had their section 31 listed and they are being invited nationally to talk about what they did to come from a Section 31 to now be recognised as one of the better radiology departments and the processes that they are now using, you know, across the NHS system. Right. Uh, one of the other divisions, the Women's and Children's Division, who was uh, rated by the CTC, which is the regulatory agency of the worst performing division, uh, is now rated by the CTC as the best performing division. Now, what happened for these examples, if you like, that's happening in the trust, is um, through a just a, a set of behaviours of we do this by, you know, some of those that we have that they could focus on, and a framework that enabled them to start making decisions for themselves, right. um, hope that they could do things differently, a process that they could follow that was based on building that sense of self and being able to make decisions and uh, getting, um, encouraging them that they were capable of uh, finding the solutions that they needed to work their way out of the special measures. It is incredible to watch what these teams are doing for themselves and these people. So they're winning national awards everywhere for the NHS. There was one as recent as last week uh, where it's gone up on the, um, the national NHSI web, uh, website for having the best national process for reporting on cancer patients. Uh, the list goes on uh, and you feel the difference inside the trust with what they're doing. Now, what are they doing? They are collectively working together to achieve the shared and common goals. They've taken the focus off um, the learned help us and what we can't do and this is what's happened in the past. And now they're asking the right questions. How can we? What would we need to do? What would happen if we? And they do all of this through the lens of their four behaviours, which is we're going to do what we say we're going to do, we're going to listen, we're going to learn from everyone and then we're going to lead, we're going to do no delay every day and we're going to work together and then we're going to celebrate those things that we have um, achieved together. And Bob, that's exactly what they're doing. So when you go when you go in and you, you're talking to, say, the radiation um, department or whatever, are the, are the goals that you want achieved, are they set by management or are they set collectively by management and by the people working in the department or how does that work? No, it's the the people in the departments know what they need to do. So there might be some global, you know, for the trust, (coughs) 
excuse me, some global things that they need to achieve as a trust. But it's the departments themselves. <coughs> Sorry, I started to choke. It's the departments well, themselves really good. that determine yeah. what they need to do. If you choke, if you choke, being in the end of the chest, you're in a good posi- good good place to start. So the oh, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, um, but no, it it is the divisions themselves. As I said, they've got very capable people inside the division. They know what they need to do. Now they have the confidence to go out and do it and achieve it. Now the other. You can never. Yeah. No, go on. You can management in organisations the size of these and the trust of between 6,000 and 14,000 people. Management can't be everywhere fixing everything that needs to be fixed. Sure. What they have to do is set up an environment where it enables people to make the decisions that they need to make. So, and, and that's the problem with a lot of the organisations. It's about being clear around being able to make those decisions, collectively work on that together to achieve the goals, you know, that you've got set out before you. And if we are operating in organisations that are highly personalised, which is about what's going to happen to me and why wasn't I offered that position of, um, you know, that uh, promotion and uh, you can't come and work in my area because this is my passion, or you can't achieve the purpose of the organisation or all those common goals. You can't do. You can't achieve the opportunities unless you're prepared to come together and work together. I'm going to say something. Really basic stuff that I'm talking to. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something you probably find offensive, but um, in every, I've found that in every company there are always people who are negative, who would not work in an iron lung, who always want to criticise, who always are downers. How do you get those people on board or do you get them out? I've always had the belief um, that uh, the only way to change people is to change people. Um, you disagree with that? No, no, and I, I don't find what you've said offensive at all because it's a reality, Bob. But this is what happens with what we do. Right now, those negative voices mm-hmm. have uh, the ear of everyone. They're influencing what's happening across the organisation. Absolutely. So you've got to create a different movement, okay? So, this is, so you run with the people that want to create the movement that's going to create the new culture for you. So once you're creating that movement that creates the new culture, those people that were negative, well, to begin with, some of them actually crossed the line and then think the new culture was their idea anyway, you know, putting it together. (laughs) So they'll cross over and and then they change. But all those that don't, and there is the normal distribution, so some of them won't, but their voice no longer holds the power in the organisation. So they end up becoming a very small minority. Now, some of them just move on because they want to go and find another organisation where they can um, uh, apply their addiction of, you know, drama, you know, to the organisation yep. or the negativity of it. Uh, they will move on. But if they do stay, they get silenced because you've created a bigger movement around those things that we can collectively achieve together. It becomes right. much greater. So it silences the voice. So your your successes are well documented and there are no doubt a number of people working in this area around the world getting good results. There's a lot of companies that 
that do good socially while running a very successful yeah. business and their and their stories are well known. So why is the average C-suite reluctant to invest in this sort of um, initiative? Well, if you really want change across an organisation, the change has to begin from those that are leading it, Bob, too. Sure. Okay? So I think there's two things that happen. There's a couple of things that happen. One, do the leaders believe the change is possible? Probably not because they've been given a lot of promises in the past and it hasn't happened yep. for them, so I don't blame them for thinking the way that they, they think. But also, people are afraid of the people's side of things and they're afraid of the effort that they think is going to be involved in having to change the people. And some of them are nervous that they're not going to be able to successfully bring about that change in people. Dealing with people and the behaviours of people they are not comfortable with. So they'd rather put in a system of technology to try to harness the people because that way they're not left having to try to work out how to deal with the change in the people. But why is it that as soon as people become leaders of an organisation, it is assumed that they are also leaders and specialists in terms of knowing how to lead people successfully. Being successful in a business doesn't mean by default that you are successful in leading people. Oh, I agree. And it's a hard job. I agree entirely. It's a hard job. The, The challenge that I'm putting out to everyone Is there programs that are successful with good leaders? Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they're all all fine. They're doing well. But there are a lot of organisations, as I said, look at the financial institutions that we've had across the world, where making money was something that they've all, or making money was something that was supposed to have done well, but that isn't always, you know, quite the case. Uh, But the workforce and the way the workforce behaves, you know, with the group think and the way the culture, you know, has has come about, that's not okay. And the challenge that we're putting out to leaders, if if we look for wise leaders, you've got to understand what constitutes a wise leader. What makes up a wise leader? What's the, not the competencies, they're a dime a dozen, what are the intrinsic attributes that make up a wise leader? What those attributes are is that they can think in terms of, they understand that if they think in terms of the greater good, then that is going to benefit everyone that's working for them, the purpose they need to achieve, and for the customer themselves. And that the success is multiple, bigger and greater than if they, you know, haven't taken into consideration, you know, and asked themselves what those questions are. So a wise leader makes decisions because it's in the best interest of the business, not self. Okay, is one of the ways that we measure you know, the wisdom, the, how people operate as wiser leaders. But we have to start asking different questions. We have to start asking what really constitutes a happy, productive workforce that wants to achieve together and wants to achieve the goals. We are not asking the right questions and leaders are unintentionally, and it is unintentional, but they are unintentionally reinforcing this personalisation in the workplace. And that hurts people. It doesn't promote what you need to have in the workplace, but more importantly, it harms the people and the leaders themselves. They don't realise it's happening, but until we start to understand what we have done, for instance, if you look at engagement surveys where the whole of the developed countries are using these surveys, and the content of the survey is, 
are you happy with your management? Are you happy with the communication? Are you happy with your colour chair? Are you happy? Are the individual happy? You're setting the person up for disappointment because an organisation cannot meet the needs of the individual people inside an organisation. So when we're asking them, what does it take for you to be happy? There is that message of, this is what I need to be happy and, and I gave you my views and opinions, but you didn't act on them. Yeah. So now I'm dissatisfied in the job and you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So what the organisations need to do is ask the right questions, refocus the people where they can work together, achieve something, got that connectedness together, and it's a win-win. The people grow their self-worth in that organisation and the organisation achieves the purpose. My challenge is that from a psychological perspective, we are asking the wrong questions, Bob. We've got to ask the right questions. Sue Jauncey, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. That's a great way to finish that interview. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Sue Jauncey and Pulse, go to pulseaustralasia.com. That's Pulse, P-U-L-S-E, Australasia. That's like Australia and Asia joined together, dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network right after this short break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Now, hundreds of companies and organizations use smartphone locations for a multitude of reasons. Now, one thing's for sure, the information is certainly not private. Even worse, more than a thousand popular apps contain location sharing code. So an app on your device gathers and records your location as often as every two seconds. So while your identity is not disclosed in those records, the New York Times showed how easy it was to connect a person to each of those two-second dots. This information can then be sold without your knowledge. An example that they gave, an app tracked a person as she went to a Weight Watchers meeting and then onto a dermatologist's office for a minor procedure. They followed her hiking with a dog, caught her staying at her ex-boyfriend's home, her location was recorded 8,600 times. Now, many companies receive anonymous, precise location data from apps whose users enable location services to get local news and weather or other information. And every time you do that, they're tracking exactly where you are. And several of these businesses claim to track up to 200 million mobile devices in the United States. That's more than 50% of all the smartphones in use. And the Times recorded 
sorry, received a sample of information gathered by just one company, revealing people's music movements in startling detail, accurate to within a few yards, and in some cases updating more than 14,000 times a day. And then the company sell, use or analyse the data to cater to advertisers, retail outlets and even hedge funds seeking insights into consumer behaviour. Sales of location-targeted advertising reached $21 billion this year. So location information is invasive. It can reveal some of your most intimate details of your life, whether you're visiting a psychiatrist or whether you go to an AA meeting, who you might date and so on. It is really easy for them to get. Now, the explanations people see when prompted to give permission by an app are often incomplete or misleading. An app may tell users that granting access to the location will help them get traffic information, but they don't mention that the data will be shared and sold. Jeez. Um, There's no federal law limiting the collection or use of such data. Still, apps that ask for access to users' locations, prompting them for permission while leaving out important details about how the data will be used, may run afoul of federal rules on deceptive business practices and they could get fined. But, sheesh, one that one that bothered me was a, a, one client of a location company runs ad campaigns for personal injury lawyers targeting people anonymously in emergency rooms of hospitals. So they track you to the hospital and then try to sell you legal services. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. Now, if you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll be again broadcasting across the world from our studios in Hollywood. And this is the place where technology meets entertainment. In in the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.